Welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Michael Brooks. I am Michael Brooks, along with the great Anna Kasparian. Anna Kasparian. Hey. <laughs> We're still refining God, we that, do I not. We can't, we can't get it right. We That's just can't. Fine. But it's okay. Whatever. These are dyslexic times. How are you doing? I'm okay. I mean, yeah, it's... I'm processing things today. You know, it's. I was just telling our producer, Kale, that... We're always expected to have strong opinions about things, but sometimes you just kind of want to sit back and absorb, listen, and process. And I'm having one of those days. So, you know, the show's going to be a little different today, uh, format wise, but I think it makes sense because a lot of these discussions need to be had and it's, it's nuanced, it's complicated, it's difficult. And, you know, it's important to listen to people and, and hear what they have to say. Absolutely. So, yeah, we should say, on today's program, we were going to have, uh, well, we are still having, but we had already booked uh, Big Waz, Wazni Lambre from The Athletic, from the Count the Dings Network. He co-hosts uh, this great podcast called Woke Bros with Nando Vila and myself. And we were going to actually talk about players unions and the NBA and the NBA coming back. So we're still going to talk about that. Um, but obviously, you know, the events of the last several days have happened. So obviously, we're going to be talking about that. Uh, with Waz as well. Um, We're going to bring him on actually in a few minutes and sort of spend the first bulk of the show just kind of having a general conversation. Definitely for people who followed me for a while, I'm sure you're familiar with Waz. We collaborate a lot. And if you're new to Waz, I'm very excited uh, that uh, you're going to be encountering his work. Uh, This is a, you know, Waz is, is a really, really, really great commentator on sports, politics, pop culture, and a lot of other things. At the end of the show, this week we will do it after the SALT segment. We're going to take your super chat questions. So you can get into the mix on the chat, but, you know, they better be good. People know that I don't, I don't mess around question-wise, though. Easily, you definitely don't. <laughs> Speaking of salt, when people ask you a question that you're annoyed by, you make it known for sure. I had, <laughs> it's I my was favorite so thing on your show. I was so unconvinced All right, of that until we'll I take watched. some of your Discord questions. And all it takes is one question that's like written in a tone that annoys you, and you're just like, Yeah, I don't know. I'm bored. I'm bored with this conversation. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Oh my God. Being boring is the greatest sin. <laughs> I do want to say, I think for Discord questions, those are patrons. TMBS patrons are the best people on earth. I think I try to be a lot. Uh, I try to be. But look, on the other hand, sometimes people come through and it's amazing. But I've even, I've actually even started on TMBS super chats being like, I don't even promise I'll respond to those. Like, this, even hilarious. if you've done a super chat, still got to go through quality control. Oh, for sure. I mean, of course you need to yeah. have that happen. I mean, it needs to. You would never handle it as poorly as Dave Rubin has, but I'll never forget when someone did a super chat question asking him when he's planning on debating Sam Cedar, and he's like, duh, 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 duh. Yeah. I don't care about those guys. <laughs> that was so good. It's like, who is like reading these questions before sending them off to you in a live show? It's insane. I know. I know. Yeah. Poor Dave. 
We actually just came across a clip of um, Larry King just like calling, like just basically saying like, Dave, what you're saying is ridiculous. And just watching like his crestfallen. And I was really thinking about that. I was like, you know, that honestly, because I have the honor of having people like Adolf Reed and, you know, interviewing people that I really admire. It's just like, what if Adolf Reed was just like, no, that's not completely not getting it. And Larry King just does that to Dave Rubin. <laughs> On a regular basis now. I, I think Larry King only agree, agrees to do interviews with Dave Rubin to troll him. Like, in real time. It's kind Like, it makes you feel almost a little bad. Like, taking a phone call from his son and doesn't get off the phone for like 20 minutes straight during a live interview. Okay, during a live interview. So good. His son's trying to like wrap it up. He's like, oh, you're doing an interview. Let's wrap this up. He keeps talking. He's like, no, no. So when's your next game? Let me know about it. I, I want it. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that player on your team. Yeah, that guy's great. He's a real cannon. Like, it's just incredible. <laughs> he said, the Angels got Hernandez. <laughs> <laughs> With his legs crossed. With his like, legs crossed. Wearing a wearing like kind of like kind of super senior citizen Jewish swag with like the Nikes and the ties, just just pure disrespect. <laughs> pure disrespect. <laughs> <laughs> no, at this point, in a way, Dave Rubin is a little bit of a national treasure because we need the comedic relief. See, the simple things in life are still here, folks. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I needed that. I haven't like That's laughed great. like that in a while. It's been, yeah, it's been, it's been rough, you know, seeing what's happening in the country and then also just questioning, you know, what direction are we going in? What's the plan? Because it's, you know, and we're going to talk about this throughout the show because it's one thing to demonstrate the rage. The rage is there and it's totally justified, but strategy matters too. And, and, you know, figuring out how to get what you want um, and, and how to change this country matters too. So we'll discuss that throughout the show today. Absolutely. And of course, we've got some great, as he usually does, uh, Cornell West has put things basically best. So we'll play that clip in a couple of minutes. He was on Anderson Cooper last night. I love it. Like Anderson Cooper always has the most like he has the most sort of like dramatic theater kid faces anyways. And then it's really amplified when he's listening to Cornell West, like summarize American history and the complete rot and failure of our democracy right now. And he's just there like, hmm, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it is amazing. It, it's the, you know, honestly, it's the, the news actor facial expression like every news host on cable television has it in their back pocket. And it's that like, like you know what I mean? It's like, was very I good. need to Did look. Did you ever do that yeah. at any point in your career? No, because I can't. Like the, the reason why, the very first job I had out of high school was in a traditional newsroom. Out of high school? And it just. You went straight out, I'm out sorry, of high college. School. My bad. No, no, no. Out of college. My bad. Prodigy. Of course. <laughs> no, no. But I just remember, like, everything felt so manufactured and fake. Like, like the way everyone spoke. Like, no one talks like that. What, you you can talk talks like a like normal that. person. You'll see that in a second. <laughs> you, you can talk like a normal person and people will listen to you. In fact, they'll probably relate to you more. And um, 
Yeah, look, one of the reasons why I ended up at TYT is because, and it was supposed to be like a little temporary job, right? To make a little extra money on the side. But like, you know, Jank, he comes in, he's a wrecking ball. There, there are no rules, no rules at all. Like mm. no script, no nothing. He comes in like 30 seconds late to the newscast, the newscast. And he has like this giant stack of papers. It's super messy. He sits down and he's like, just starts railing against the Bush administration. This is like in 2007. And I was like, that's that's what I want. Right, I want that's, that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. You can swear so. George W. Bush. I don't care. <laughs> Let's do this. So good. So uh, good. Meanwhile, um, Katie Couric would like to see George W. Bush. Con- Could you imagine the the mindset? It's look. It's one thing, and I don't think like President Obama making a statement will do anything either. And his Twitter statement was anemic, but just. Katie Couric was like, I'd like Barack Obama and George W. Bush to make a statement right now. And it's like, could you imagine, like, somebody, like, just in, in rage at, like, like, this is like police murders across the country, corona ripping up poor neighborhoods, killing, like, and just like George W. Bush comes out, just like, hey, you know, Wish we weren't in social isolation so I could give Michelle Obama a candy. And everybody's just like, oh, thank you. We will stop demonstrating. (laughs) But it does show it's a giant disconnect between the people who delivered the news and actual people who live in this country and experience inequality and, you know, a militarized police force every single day. Like she doesn't know because she hasn't lived it. I don't know if if she's no, I mean, she's been a professional, you know, reporter slash anchor for a very long time. She has no idea what's really happening on the ground. And that's why she thinks a joint speech with Bush and Obama is going to make everyone calm down. No. And, and look, I think that what sparked these protests was what happened to Floyd. There's no question. Of course. But there is, it's, it's something much deeper yes. than one instance of police brutality and, and one instance of, of police murder. This yeah. is about we saw a, a systemic issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so that's why when you know, they arrested Chauvin yesterday, I remember thinking to myself, they're doing this because they think maybe it'll calm the protesters down. Maybe people won't take to the streets tonight. But I knew that it was not even close to enough. I think if they arrest the other three, it's still not enough. Because I know we should understand what the protesters want. It's not about one case. It's about how this system has been structured and how it's been fortified by the very people who are supposed to be reporting our stories, by the very people who are supposed to be representing our best interests. The politicians haven't been doing that. The journalists haven't been doing that. You know, I I see reporters from CNN puzzled at what happened in Atlanta yesterday with their um, studios. And you got to understand, like, playing this whole both sides thing when reporting the news and treating both sides as if they're completely equal and refusing to actually get to the bottom of the truth and do a real analysis has angered and frustrated the disenfranchised in this country for a long time. And that's where a lot of that rage comes from. Absolutely. So uh, right now we're going to have Waz, Wazni Lombre, Big Waz, Yo. the Haitian sensation joining us now. Uh, is my camera hey, good? Is, is my Your camera's good? good, man. You're good. Okay, good. Cool. Joining. Let me introduce you for a second. 
Okay. You can find Waz's work at The Athletic, where he hosts uh, great podcasts, including Hoops Adjacent, which I'm addicted to, with uh, David Altridge. And he writes, as you can also catch him on Count the Dings, including on Woke Bros that we co-host with Nando Vila. So Waz is all over. Waz, thanks for doing this. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here with you guys, man. Um, obviously, big fans and friends of both of y'all. So this is going to be fun. Yeah, we haven't been together since we did live show. So. Yes, yes, yes. A very legendary night for me um, in the annals of our friendship, Mike, as I was, you know. Oh, definitely. I was on one, as they say. <laughs> as the kids say these days. <laughs> So I was no one has been more drunk at a TMBS live show. Oh my gosh, that was amazing! It was amazing. It was you were having a good time. That's all that matters. It was great. The TMBS community, man, like guys had like mangoes freshly picked from their home farms and stuff. It was like I don't know. It was just a great sort of utopic <laughs> night and community. I, I loved it, man. That was one of my favorite nights out here in LA. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, I'm glad you're on the show today. We actually wanted you on the show um, a week ago. I proposed it to Michael because you had such interesting perspectives on, you know, the NBA and how like the power structure has changed a little bit um, when it comes to the players uh, versus the owners and managers. We're going to talk about that later um, because I I think that, you know, what we're seeing with worker demands in this country, it certainly like applies to that discussion. But I also think that it's awesome that you're on the show today um, to help us kind of like dissect what's been happening in the country. Um, and there was this really great interview with Cornell West yesterday on Anderson Cooper's show that we wanted to just talk about, show the audience and, and discuss because, you know, and I know, Michael, you agree with this. Cornell West has a way of crystallizing what's happening in the country and communicating it in a way that I think just has broad appeal that, that speaks to everyone. And that's really important. So why don't we do it? Let's, let's go to the first clip. And in this first clip, he talks about why it is that we're seeing people take to the streets right now. Now you've got a younger Mm. generation of all of these different colors and genders and sexual orientations saying we won't take it any longer. But you know what's sad about it though, brother? At the divas level, it looks as if the system cannot reform itself. We've tried black faces in high places. Too often our black politicians, professional class, middle class, become too accommodated to the capitalist economy, too accommodated to the militarized nation state, too accommodated to the market-driven culture tied with celebrity status, power, fame, all of that superficial stuff that means so much to so many fellow citizens. And what happens? What happens is we got a neo-fascist gangster in the White House who really doesn't care for the most part. You got a neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party that is now in the driver's seat with the the collapse of Brother Bernie. And they don't really know what to do because all they want is show more black faces, show more black faces. But oftentimes these black faces are losing legitimacy, too, because the Black Lives Matter movement emerged under a black president, black attorney general and black homeland security. And they couldn't deliver. You see, that was incredible. Right. 
Man, you know what's so interesting about that is <laughs> last night the Atlanta PD, I guess the Atlanta power structure, they made T.I. And, and Killer Mike, two, you know, prominent black rappers, big in the Atlanta community. Um, they made them get up at a press conference and ask the guys to stop. And T.I. said that Atlanta is Wakanda and we shouldn't be doing this here. And this is T.I. This is a seven, eight time felon. Like not no exaggeration, you know, like and even he is so entrenched in the power structure that he feels a need to come out and, you know, sort of defend the stance of the status quo. And Dr. West is right. Um, A lot of times you get so entrenched within the structure and that you become as rich, richer than your, you, you ever dreamed. You get to be in rooms with the most influential people that you never imagined you'd be in those rooms. And you start to want to keep these things, you know, at all costs and think, well, man, like there's got to be a way to keep this stuff and make things right. Um, oftentimes people, it's hard for people to make those, to make those decisions in a split moment. I think if T.I., Killer Mike, if you had an honest conversation with them, I think they would understand that, you know, what's happening right now is just a manifestation of all the bullshit that's come before it. But, you know, those guys are business owners, right? Like if you're a business owner, do you want to see your business get burnt down right next door to the target? Probably not. And that's the difficulties we face within the system. Like, Oftentimes it's not like, and and Dr. West crystallized it, like it's not enough to elect a black mayor when the system and the structure is so entrenched and is so dedicated to functioning one way. Like you can't just turn a freaking cruise ship, right? Like it's not a speedboat. Like the, 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 the power structure is a cruise ship. It's not this nimble thing that just one election cycle or two or shit, three election cycles can just turn the whole thing around. Like it takes a lot more than that. Um, and I think people are realizing that we can't just count on black leaders to go ahead, get in there and change, undo literally 450 years of work. Yeah, that's that's such a great point. And, you know, as you were talking about the power structure and like the like the seduction of it, like it made me think about like it's it's such a multi pronged approach to kind of keep it intact, because think about how politicians keep so-called journalists and reporters on check, right? They, they bring them in with the allure of like the White House Correspondents' Dinner. You, and and, and once, you're, once you're in that cocktail circuit, right, it, it's hard to accept being kicked out of it by being a truth teller. So I think the White House Correspondents' Dinner is like a perfect example of like maintaining that power structure. Well, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's what my man Charles Pierce calls the courtier press, right? Like, these guys are all, like, sort of suckling at the power teeth. Like, oh, my goodness, uh, this person knows my – like, all you have to do is say my name. Um, and <laughs> you, know, you know what's so funny about this is that working in the NBA, you see it all the time with the NBA press. And, and it's a lot less harmful because, let's face it, what we're doing is covering a game. Um, it's not it's, – it's, quite frankly, it's not as important as a guy who can take your granny social security checks away with the wave <laughs> of a pen, right? Like, it's just not important. But you see it all the time when, like, Doc Rivers is a master at this. He knows everybody's name. 
He laughs at their jokes. He he knows how to like put everybody at ease because he knows ultimately it's in his best interest to have these guys like him. And I see it all the time, right? Like I see the like everybody uproariously laughing at Doc's jokes. Like every time he comes in, everybody just lights up. And the idea is just being that like. You know, Doc is clearly important. He's clearly more important than any individual person in the press room. And so you see that power dynamic play itself out all the time in sports media. And again, like, I'm not going to lie. I'm somebody who's fallen victim to it myself. And that's just sports media, let alone the guy with, again, at the wave of a pen could bomb countries. You understand what I'm saying? Like, that that's... And again, like getting invited to these dinners and, you know, having your name in a certain place and knowing that you can go to a party and you get to hang with billionaires at their nice, lavish homes and all of that. Hobnobbing with all of these people is, of course, is seductive to a certain type of person. I think especially within the American professional media elite, like that's what you went to these fancy schools to do. You know, like you went to Harvard to hobnob with these people. That was part of the price of the mission. It's like, all right, I get to be around the most important people in society. Um, and, you know, oftentimes in the press, like where do these people come from? They come from Dartmouth, Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, Princeton, Stanford, like that. And that's at the low end. You know, when you talk about these plush jobs at places like the New York Times or Vanity Fair, that's part of the bargain. Like that was part of the whole reason to do what they're doing, you know? Um, And it's also part of it that I think is tough too, is like, if you are an important person at the New York Times, your salary is not commiserate with that of some regular worker. Like you don't make 50 G's a year, right? Like if you work at MSNBC and you're an on-air personality, you're part of the rich, Right, like back in the day, you were some muckraking reporter, you were literally a peer. You know, when it came to how much money you filed your taxes for every single April, that's no longer the case with the elite political press. And again, it's a lot of it is status from the schools that you went to, the job that you occupy, but some of it is just straight up money. Like you cannot relate to a person who works two jobs and comes out with $45,000 a year at the end of that. Like you have no, you have no, you can't touch those people and you, you more relate to the power structure. That's, that's part of the tension that you're seeing on CNN and MSNBC. And we don't need to mention, you know, Rupert Murdoch's operation. (laughs) Uh, We have a second uh, clip from Dr. West that we'll just play now. As we keep going, because, you know, again, yes, I I think not only does he speak to a lot of different people, and I think he speaks really to the highest aspirations that we have and the deepest insight and the highest possible potential. So let's play this second clip and then we'll we'll keep going. Wise, we'll get your reaction and then keep going. So that when you talk about the masses of black people, the precious poor and working class black people, poor and working class, brown, red, yellow, whatever color, they're the ones who are left out and they feel so thoroughly powerless, helpless, hopeless. Then you get rebellion. 
And we've reached the point now, it's a choice between nonviolent revolution, and by revolution what I mean is the democratic sharing of power, resources, wealth, and respect. If we don't get that kind of sharing, you're going to get more violent explosions. Now, the sad thing is that this neo-fascist moment in the White House, you've got some neo-fascist brothers and sisters out there who are already armed. They show up there at the U.S. Capitol, and they don't get arrested. They don't get put down. Wise, go first. I mean, what is there to say? There's no more clear indication of what we're talking about when a guy, you know, and again, like the, the 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 juxtaposition of the same people who might call me a snowflake because you know I think black people shouldn't get choked out in Staten Island for selling Lucy's. <laughs> By the way, I happen to be a, a former Lucy purchaser, so that you know, not even to sound crass, <laughs> like. That hit me in a certain way, but whatever. Like the idea that I think that that makes me a slow snowflake. But you can't leave your house without an AK forty seven. Like it's it's so weird those two juxtapositions. But like it's obvious. It's laid bare. Like one set of citizens. There's a rule, a set of rules for one set of citizens, and there's a set of rules for the rest of us. And that and you see that play out every single day out in the country. Um, oftentimes, you know, it, it's it's tough for me as a black person to be like, man, I would love for us to get super armed and scare the shit out of white people, right? But the other side of me, my other the other side of my brain is like, man, that might get really truly ugly, right? And you're constantly fighting with those two dualities. Like, do we go out and be these people? And meet them where they live, which is essentially like, all right, we're willing to freaking shoot people about this um, and bear the brunt of that. I think that's the that's the that's the dilemma of black life sort of every single day in America. Like the idea that 20 black dudes would show up to City Hall, say, in New York City with guns exposed and they would just be politely escorted out just guys just let's just walk right out of this building it's okay we'll talk about this another time that would never happen that just like you can't even fathom that as a reality yeah of course everything you say of course makes complete sense and i think i mean there's a couple of different things that i want to get to out of that but let me just start with first like i think it's it's when you look at the police response to these different things that are happening across the country there is just this very clear dimension to them. Like they're policing ideology, essentially. So it's like in addition to the race component, which is at the forefront and obvious, it's like if your actual position was we're here theoretically to keep some sort of stability, some sort of stasis, then what happened at Michigan is a fundamental threat to the whole operation of things, period, right? Like that – you literally stopped the state legislature from functioning because you became like jeopardizing people's health in a pandemic, carrying heavy artillery, done, full stop. And, you know, and, and I think that's another way that you can start to track like the response to these protests and also what comes next out of this, because, you know, we know that we need to start cutting these departments funding significantly. Right. But we also know that And we were talking about this uh, in the prep as well in California and New York and all these places. I mean, the, so, the safety net is getting gutted. We're going into another phase of austerity, even as we're in a depression. And what's going to get bulked up and continue to get bulked up police departments. 
And you can't help but see that as obviously the calculation that like, well, people are going to get more and more dissatisfied because this country's crumbling. So what are we going to do about it? Right. Oh, well, we're going to have a paramilitary force that's going to get selectively applied. And some groups, even if they're out protesting, they fit in the ethos with those who have power. I, I think the way that these protests are being covered and look, to be honest, like I, I'm in a place right now, I said it in the beginning of the show, I just want to really sit back and like absorb what other people are saying and understand what's happening on the ground, right? I'm not on the ground. And so I'm not, I'm in a super privileged position and I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone. But one thing that I do see in the way it's being covered in the media is that they seem to only focus on one component or one aspect of it. Like yesterday, when things really started to, you know, get chaotic and out of control, every single news outlet that I watched would mention, oh, look at this crowd. It's, it's actually pretty diverse. You see a lot of white people in the crowd as well. And then their natural conclusion was, oh, it's Antifa. And by the way, there might be, there might be some Antifa people there, right? But I don't think that every white person who was there is a <laughs> right. member of Antifa. I think that this is about power. I think this is about inequality. I think this is about the incessant austerity that we've experienced in this country while the funding for our military and our police force has continued to climb. And so when you're unable to afford an education for your kids or when you're uh, unable to even afford having kids in the first place, right? Or if you want to go to school and, and get an education, maybe not for, you know, any type of you know, career, but you want to go to school to be enlightened. You're curious, you want to learn, but you just can't afford it because you'd have to dig yourself in a giant hole worth hundreds of thousand dollars. You just feel like there's no hope and there's no way out, right? And I don't think that our lawmakers have really considered what people do when they feel as though they have nothing left to lose, you know, when they feel like there's nothing left. A friend of mine, a friend of mine actually asked me, he's like, yo, what, do you, what is the meaning of a protest? Like, what do you, what do you, what is, what, what is the meaning to you? Like, to me, it's just a form of communication, right? Like, let's just pretend, for example, that everybody that was out in Brooklyn, New York, or downtown LA wrote a nicely worded letter or a sternly worded letter to their representatives in Congress, their state assemblymen, um, the mayor, whoever. Let's just say they all did that. How do you assume that message would be received? They'd probably fall on deaf ears. Um, th- this is a way to sort of take a megaphone and scream your message out because other, other ways have not worked. And whatever that message may be, whether it be like, Look, man, you shouldn't just get to choke a black dude out um, on the streets just because you feel like he was resisting arrest, right? Like that message could be a variety of things, but this is the only form of communication that gets your stuff on CNN. Like, like that's that's just the bottom line. Like, there's no there's no other way you could get Donald Trump to tr- to tweet about the treatment of the citizens at the hands of bad policemen. There's no other way to get it done. Like literally, I'm trying to think of maybe possibly some other way to get important influential people to deal with your issues quite seriously 
that you know that doesn't involve burning up a target. I, I I'm I'm I would love for somebody to offer me a, a, an alternate way to you know get your message across. I personally, in my 33 years on Beyonce's planet, I have yet to see one. It's Chronix's planet was. <laughs> um, I want to see. I just sent to Kale. Uh, speaking of which, uh, different types of people showing up to protest. Uh, I don't think that these Amish carrying Black Lives Matter signs are members of Antifa. I just caught this. I thought this was, this was some very interesting. <laughs> when Ezekiel and Abel come out, you know? So, Damn. yeah, that's serious. <laughs> that's serious business. You know, all right, so actually, specifically to that was, the mayor of Atlanta came out and she said, vote. Now, oh, you know, and it's like, to me, it's like, I guess that's what? just, that's, oh, well, the thing what? is, it's so delusional. Like, I don't understand, yeah. like, even, like, let's just take it on its own terms. Minneapolis has a Democratic mayor, Democratic appointed police chief, Democratic governor. New York City is run by a guy who, who I think, frankly, if we're looking here at de Blasio, de Blasio is, is is so scared of the NYPD that you have to question some of the functionings of even like formal democracy in New York. And he got elected essentially saying, I get this because I have a black son, has not really done anything. So I guess just, look, I'm not telling people, I'm not trying to go on the opposite, like, oh yeah, don't vote, fuck it, whatever. But I'm seeing that Joe Biden thinks that the mayor of Atlanta gave the most inspiring speech I'm seeing Hillary Clinton tweet out a picture of herself wearing a mask that says vote. It's a black mask that looks like a muzzle. And I ask myself, what is wrong with these people? And are you trying to get people to not vote? <laughs> I mean, and just, I, I, yeah, just, I, no, I would, yeah, I would no. invite Anna to jump in here. Cause yeah, I mean, look, one of Hillary Clinton's biggest problems is that she doesn't get it. Like she hasn't been getting it right. She's in a different world. I I would be shocked if she expected her super predator comment to hurt her as much as it did in 2016, but that was her mentality. Look, the thing, the thing that I liked about what Cornell West had to say the most was he, it, it was brief, but he mentioned the collapse of Bernie. Right. And, and he was saying it in the context of this, this election. Right. So he's not the presumptive democratic nominee. And when you tell people vote, okay, so we have this terrible person in the white house and the only hope we have, the only hope we have to get him out is Joe Biden who authored and successfully push through the crime bill, which is part of the problem that we're dealing with today. I mean, we spend more and more of our precious resources on incarcerating people, on incarcerating the poor, on uh, incarcerating black people, incarcerating Latinos. And we, when we pay our taxes, what do we get in return? Our money goes toward the military. Our money goes toward the police force. Our money goes toward all this stuff that then turns around and criminalizes our behavior, right? And, and, and ends up, we, we incarcerate more people in this country than literally any other country in the world. 
right like, per literally, capita. Literally, that's I that isn't even per capita. That's just like more. We just do this. There's more. no there's no comparison. Any other what 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 people out here like to call the civilized world. Um, there's just no comparison. I was I was telling Mike um three years ago I was in Spain. And, you know, a guy, they called it a terrorist attack. A guy ran over a few people. I think he killed some people and they called that a terrorist attack. I was like, even in, you know, scared of shitless of brown people, America, that would just be like, <laughs> a fender bender on the floor. But like, you know what I'm saying? Um, and, but you know what's so funny? Um, I was watching the Innocence Project doc last night before I went to sleep on Netflix and Larry Krasner was on there. And that's a dude who ran on the stuff that he went in and did. Straight up, got elected in Philadelphia, fired 30, 40 ADAs the day he got in. Fired them. But he ran on this, right? Like, when you you dismissively say, vote. This is a guy who, like, first of all, that's his job, right? As DA is to prosecute people and to do that, like... That would be your actual job, what you focus on every day. Anyway, he ran on this thing and got in there and put his money where, he mo- where his mouth was, exonerated a bunch of people. But, like, I know this is going to sound obvious to the, you know, the listeners and, and, and watch viewers of Jacobin Radio, but Joe Biden ain't that. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I mean, like, this is just obvious. Like, this idea of vote, like, as if Joe Biden is going to save us. You know, it, or, or as if Obama had saved this before. Like this dude God. literally said, if he had a son, and and you know when you look at the ears and stuff like that, like you could argue that Trayvon did kind of look like Barack a little something something. But he basically said what everybody could see for themselves. Like if I had a son, he might look like Trayvon, and something like that might happen to him. And like this guy got blown the smithereens of it. And of course, I don't think he had the, the the gumption to stand up to something like that. I don't think that was part of something that he wanted to do, stand up to the police state in America. So it's like, what are we even talking about? Like, even if we got every single liberal's favorite person ever, Barack Obama, in the um, office of the presidency, there wasn't some, like, great change to the fortunes of people who live under a police state. It's, it's a, just a ridiculous notion. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think even if uh, we still had that hope of Bernie becoming the next president, simply electing the right leader isn't enough, right? And so I, I think people do have, I mean, I think it's manifesting maybe not in the best way at the moment, but I think that people, especially young people in this country, have this urge to be politically active. And I think they realize, regardless of who we end up electing, No, we got to hold them accountable and we need to be part of the conversation permanently. Like we're not just going to, all right, let's have this election, you know, let's elect someone that we might like and then just think that things are going to change because historically in this country, that has not been the case. And I also want to just make a a quick point um, about, you know, just like this commentary that we're seeing on social media about how, oh, we're experiencing what we're experiencing because of a lack of leadership, right? That Donald Trump is inherently, or or more importantly, like uniquely terrible. And in some ways he is. But 
what he got a lot of attention for this week was his disgusting thug comment and, uh, you know, the, the looting comment on Twitter. I'll, I'll read it to you in just one second. And then I want to compare it to something that a prominent conservative had to say in the aftermath of Hurricane uh, Katrina. So Trump had tweeted, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let it happen. Just spoke to the governor, Tim Waltz, blah, blah, blah. And then he ends it with, any difficulty, and we will uh, assume control, but when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you. So he essentially threatens the protesters with shootings, and people are like, oh my God, remember when the Republican Party was decent? They, they, they didn't yeah, advocate right. for this kind of stuff. No, I don't remember. I don't remember that, uh, because... <laughs> The Republican Party might have been a little more um, covert or not even covert, just a little more sophisticated in their language. But in some cases, not really. So Peggy Noonan, who's a very prominent oh, Wall Street uh, uh, Republican who's invited on all of these cable news shows, all of these network news shows, as you know, a real credible Republican voice. She had written in um, a 2005 a Wall Street Journal column and it was titled After the Storm, okay? You scroll down, you read it, and she talks about some of the uh, protests and looting that happened. And she says this, okay? As for the tragic pigism that is taking place on the streets of New Orleans, it is not unbelievable, but it is unforgivable, and I hope the looters are shot. Wow. <laughs> so just, just understand that, like, Trump... He tends to say things out loud, you know, whereas I think historically, like politicians have been a little more careful, but he represents something that's existed in this country for a long, long time. This idea of, you know, state sponsored terrorism, state sponsored murder uh, has been around in this country for a long time. It's who we are, it, and it's it's part of our identity. And unless we're willing to accept that, nothing's going to change. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's perfect. And you know, Peggy Noonan is somebody who is invited on to talk about how uncouth Trump is. And of course, even that uh, start, you know, looting starts, shooting starts, was traced back to a segregationist mayor's comments. I think in Miami from the '60s, Trump is the Republican Party. And this is a slice of history and an ongoing tradition in this country that he represents. And people need to, to be real about that. Um, the, only, the last question I have on this was, and I think this is really important because it speaks to uh, the democracy dimension. Like Cornell West just, just knocked it out, right? Like there's either a real democracy or, there's, or things like this emerge, period. And then, and then when things like this happen, we need to disaggregate and figure out like some of the reporting coming out of Minnesota, which I have zero doubt about, is like, look, if you're from a neighborhood that is on the receiving end of these tactics and this type of policing and this murder, I have no comment, zero judgment on anything that you do, period, full stop. I have nothing to elaborate. That might offend some people, but that just is what it is. And at the same time, I have no doubt that there are outside forces, there's police, there's a lot of other um, aspects uh, at these protests to both try to make the protesters look bad and maybe even do the other goal of damaging these neighborhoods uh, while they're at it. So I think we need to, yep. and we can't be naive. We have to be really attentive and really smart and really shrewd about this stuff and not just fetishize action for action's sake. And on top of that starts to become then the question of like, 
what are the actual political demands that emerge out of this? It starts really simple. You commit a fucking murder in broad daylight, you get charged with murder. Uh, now there's a question about, uh, you know, starting to seriously slash police department funding. Obviously, that needs to happen. That money needs to get redirected to things with social and economic productive use. And then the last thing that I wanted to put on the docket and get your thoughts on, I know we also talked about this the other day, too. But I'd like, you know, both of your thoughts on this. There's this piece by Adolf Reed in Non-Site from 2016 where he goes into the numbers generally about police violence in this country. And of course, it's racist. It's, this, it's just black people are targeted and victims of police violence at an absolutely high rate relative to population. Anybody, everybody knows that. It's disgusting. It's a reality that must end. And then in addition to that, there's studies like police violence in neighborhoods where the median income is above $100,000, less than 10%, maybe less than 5%. Median income is around 50, 90%. Right. And in a general in America across all demographics, even when we're getting out of disproportionate application, police kill a lot of people of all racial backgrounds in this country. Um, yeah. This is a violent, violent profession relative. So it, I'm wondering, like, in terms of what you think the broader set of demands could be, and is there also the opportunity to say that in addition to the racist white supremacy-based terrorism that is obviously on display here, there's also a big-picture question that cuts across class, race, and the very nature of policing itself that we need to build a coalition around to, to, to change. You know, Mike, what you're, what you're talking about is very smart in the sense that, um, and, I, and I'll tell you guys a quick story. You know, I went to Penn State for like the first two years of my college career, and Penn State is located in the middle of Pennsylvania, which is absolutely nothing like Philadelphia. And I mean, people call Pittsburgh a city, but whatever. It's not even like Pittsburgh, right? Um, and I, I happen to live with four kids who were from central Pennsylvania. Like I'm talking about places where there were literal dirt roads, right? Like these, these are poor working folk, white people though. And I remember the first time I heard them talk about the cops in ways that I would hear people in my all black neighborhoods talk about the cops, call the cops pigs. They, they would disparage other people from communities um, that might be affiliated with the cops as narcs. They use some of the same vernacular of anti-police um, people that bl only black people I'd ever heard talk about cops this way. Um, and again, these are people from poor rural areas in not Alabama and Mississippi, but Pennsylvania, right? Like we wouldn't associate that sort of thinking um, with people from this part of the country, but yet here they were telling me like, yeah, man, the freaking cops in my neighborhood are assholes. I hated those dudes. They were mm -hmm. terrible to me and my homies. They harassed us because we weren't the rich kids. Like you're talking about something that's absolutely true across America when it comes to poor communities. Cause that's, you know, that's what I feel like comfortable people think like the police are their personal bodyguards. Um, the white lady in Central Park, Amy Cooper, whatever yep. her name is, it's like not only you like not even when I feel threatened, like you're my personal cool joe. 
I get to sick you on a motherfucker whenever, you know, I get the need or I feel like I want to do that. Um, and, and so, you know, that, and that goes across the board. Like if, you know, and you see it out here in California, the way people treat the homeless people. Right. Um, and that goes across. It don't matter if you white, black, Latin American or whatever the case may be. Homeless people get treated with the wrath when it comes to police. And I've heard it. It's like, yo, treat them like criminals. Lock them up. You know what I'm saying? So that and what you're saying is very prescient because it does across the board. Policing is seen by, you know, our comfortable class of people, people who feel like I don't I don't want a dirty guy breathing on my Starbucks. Ugh. God, you know, like, yep. you know what I'm saying? Like those people view the police forces literally their private security detail. Such a good point. You're you're absolutely right. And in Los Angeles alone, you have sixty thousand people living on the streets. Sixty thousand people. That is an army of people, right? Who f- who ha- feel that they have nothing left to lose. So yeah, I I, I think that you summarized it so perfectly. Um, all right. So, uh, we originally wanted to have you on to also talk about, um, some other issues, including, um, some changes in the NBA. I do want to take like a quick break though, if that's all right with everybody. So let's do that. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the players movement within the NBA. Welcome, welcome. So, Michael, I am not as sports savvy as you are, so I'm actually going to have you intro this interview so I don't sound like a total dweeb. Well, I'm not as sports savvy as Waz because he's actually the the professional. (laughs) Waz is literally... I just have to say, let let me just do a little behind-the-scenes nostalgia type of thing. Three, four years ago, having like... A drink at some like mediocre sports bar in Midtown Manhattan. Waz and I being like, this is cool. Like, we're doing some interesting stuff, but what are we going to do here? <laughs> like, we're totally broke. <laughs> like, what's the next step? How does this actually advance? Right. And now, man, like, Waz is at the athletic. He's co hosting a show with David Aldridge, man. Come on. That that inspired me in the same way cuz you said the same thing to me like when I went to, you know, did the thing with Lula in Brazil. It's the, I don't know, there's just these milestones that 100%. as friends it's it's very 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 cool to see. Yeah, I appreciate the words, man. And you know, I'm I I, I did, we did our show. I think it was thir- yeah, it was Thursday. Me and DA did our show. And DA is just like, you know, he's seen a lot, right? And even he is just like sort of beaten down by this to the point where he's just like, I don't even feel like talking about hoop right now. Right. And, and right. DA's talking about, you know, what is my role as a black journalist? 
And I'm sitting here like, wow, I'm a black journalist. <laughs> like journalist with a capital J. Like, I'm like, whoa, wait a second. Like, I actually have responsibilities here, like yeah. to talk about more than just LeBron James and you know Carl Anthony Towns' fadeaway jumper. Like it's it's it becomes surreal in so many moments. But I think what Anna is referring to is of all the professional sports leagues in America, the NBA's players seem to have a disproportionate influence over their working conditions than every other sports league. It's not even close. Like the Baseball Players Association is a very um, powerful union, and I love the Players Union in baseball because they are so damn adversarial towards management and the ownership class, but individual players don't wield as much power as they do in the NBA. NFL's players union, forget about it, is a joke. They treat those guys like replaceable cogs in the football machine. And NHL, like, you know, that sport's not even on ESPN anymore. They own ESPN+. Plus. But, you know, and that's no disrespect to the hockey fans out there. Um, They just don't wield as much influence. And I think... You know, you can trace the sort of genesis of what we're now in as the modern NBA era, what people are now calling the player empowerment movement, back to the summer of 2010 when LeBron James left his team in Cleveland, decided to join forces with two of his friends outside of any management, any agents, any this is like, this is where we want to play. This is why we want to play here. We structured our contracts together four years ago so that we would be free agents at the same time and we would get to choose our workplace. And that basically blew up the entire power structure, the NBA, because all of a sudden it became clear that the fortunes of these teams and these billionaires would be decided by individual players, individual star players. And it's just had a domino effect where you saw it with Kevin Durant, You saw it with Kawhi Leonard last summer where he has the Clippers and the Lakers basically under a barrel trying to basically do whatever it took to get him on their team. And, you know, I think what you've seen now manifested is that NBA players, specifically the superstars who, you know, unlike most sports, they just are so influential on the successes. An individual can be so influential on the success of his his franchise that it's just natural that the power is going to flow to them. I think what you're seeing is that NBA players, they have such a say in their workplace conditions that you just don't see in the other American professional sports. And I think it's because they've realized their power, right? Like they've realized it and they've used it to affect change in the dynamics of who controls what, who does what. You see it in the Brooklyn Nets fired their coach, Kenny Atkinson, simply because their players straight up was like, he's not the guy for the job. Straight up and down. Now, again, the nature of the contracts in the NBA is that, (laughs) you know, if you're a coach and you sign a five-year deal, if you get fired two years in, you're going to be paid out your full five-year contract. So it's like, it sucks that the guy got fired, but he's going to get paid. His family's going to be straight. It's Everything's going to work out in the end. But, you know, that's just an example to show you that everybody understands that I need to keep players. Players are the focus in this business. Now, I think as it relates to the context now, I think the next step is how they wield that power and the power that the industry 
that they work in in other directions, right? Like it's one thing to wear a t-shirt, you know, it's another thing to be like, look, I'm going to sign here, James Dolan with the New York Knicks, but I'd like to see some capital investment in these communities in the Bronx or in East New York or in Far Rockaway or whatever the case may be, right? I think that's the next step in the evolution of player empowerment and what they do with the influence that they will. Like it's cool to get up on the SPs and be like, yo, cops need to stop killing people. It's cool to wear I can't breathe t-shirt pregame instead of your warm-up. Like all of those things, much respect, and we love that they're happening. But I think the next step in the evolution of this is a, a realization that they can wield this power in many different directions. Like, of course, I love that players have the ultimate say in how franchises get run these days because it's their physical labor that gets the seats in the stands, that gets the eyeballs on the TV, right? When it comes to their partners, when it comes to the ownership class, like all they bring is capital. Like it's not like these dudes bring some insane marketing expertise or some like, like they don't bring any, literally anything else but capital. And even then, a lot of these cats we're seeing in the global pandemic are a lot broker than they've ever led on. The Houston Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta took out a damn $300 million loan at 14% interest. He's so damn highly leveraged. And you're seeing like, man, these cats aren't as liquid, aren't as rich, aren't as powerful as they like to pretend that they are. So I just, you know, I just think the next step in this evolution, just to, I know I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it's the players wielding this influence in many other directions. It's, it's such a good point. And it's kind of the, you know, the antithesis of what we're experiencing in other cases. So for instance, um, in Inglewood, California, with the construction of that new uh, stadium, what it ended up doing is it pushed out people who had lived in that community forever, their entire lives. Like immediately you have real estate speculators coming in, investors coming in, buying up all this property um, and, you know, inflating the property values there, inflating the rent there. And, you know, we already have a disastrous um, housing crisis in this country, especially in Los Angeles. And it just uh, further exacerbated the homelessness issue. And I never really thought about, you know, what specific teams or what specific players could do to kind of leverage um, their star power to help protect the communities that they're, you know, playing in, that they're based in. 100%. And I was talking to a colleague of mine, Marcus Thompson. He's a Bay Area native. He born and raised in East Oakland. And he now, you know, he covers all of the local Oakland teams for the athletic. And he was, he told me he's talked to a bunch of heads of philanthropic organizations like Golden State. The Warriors played for decades in Oracle Arena in um, Oakland. Now, they get bought up by one of these venture capitalist types out in Silicon Valley. And let's face it, him and his crowd are just like, eh, we're kind of slumming it here in Oakland. We need to do something in San Francisco. So they fought tooth and nail to get a parcel of land in San Francisco because obviously it's more posh. And that class of his peers are just like, oh, finally, I don't have to go over the bridge to go watch this glamorous team. I can ugh, just take a quick ride down to the waterfront and watch the Warriors. But 
part of that, you know, and people at the time said, man, I hope this isn't lip service was, yo, we're not leaving Oakland behind. We're moving the building, but we're going to continue to be here. And on Thursday, when we spoke to Marcus, Marcus is like all the people who work in philanthropy in Oakland said, yo, those che- they never got more checks from the Warriors than since they moved to San Francisco, which is a beautiful thing. But that's something that needs to be sustained. I think that's something that NBA players need to take up as a responsibility because let's face it, the money, the capital is there. Right. And they have the influence and the power to make sure that these type of things are happening. And and so I think that's the next step ultimately, right? Like, you know, Joe Lacob, God bless him. He's actually kept that promise and is still putting investment in the Oakland community even after they've moved on to their, you know, their Shangri-La in, in, in San Francisco. <laughs> Do you think that there's an opportunity, like, watching even the last dance uh, when when Jordan won't play the baseball season because he's just like, I, I don't, I'm a union man. I don't cross a picket line. Right. I'm you not know, a scab. Like, <laughs> I'm not a scab. Like, that's such a, I mean, you've talked about it from both directions, including the direction that people need to remind themselves that no matter how privileged, you know, and look, of course, like, this is relative to most other jobs. Of course, it's a great job. Make a ton of money, have fun, whatever. But you're still literally working for somebody else. You're literally creating a surplus profit you know, for team owners. And so you, and so people need to remind themselves that in all of these sports, these are workers, period, full stop. But then on the other hand, it just seems to me like you can't say, like, it, obviously it's not the same thing, but bus drivers, which we didn't even get to, but like bus drivers in New York City saying, no, we're not going to participate in helping the police beat the shit out of people protesting uh, actually, I'm not going to drive that bus. We're actually not part of this. Our job is to get people to work in school and whatever, not help you beat up on protesters. Part of the you can do that because you're in a union, just as you can make sure you're not going back and playing before it's safe yep. because you're in a union. So, like, I just I'm wondering, like, could there also be an opportunity for these players in addition to all of the really important areas that they're already uh, speaking on and and as you're saying, like the next wave of potentially pushing capital in constructive ways, but to also just be like, you know, like generally we're union guys and we're not scabs, whether we're talking about Major League Baseball or the NBA or whatever, or teachers, janitors, whatever. Yeah, part of me wonders if the players make that connection themselves yeah. because in many ways – this is their first and only job ever, right? right? So the concept of what the non-unionized workforce at large around the world is up against, I don't know how conscious they are because all they know is a union, right? As far as their professional lives. I, again, personally, and I never get tired of saying this, back in the days I used to work at UPS part-time, And as a part-timer, I was part of the Teamsters Union. And guess what? Even as a pissant part-timer, I could tell my supervisor, go fuck yourself. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, like, you don't understand how powerful that is. Right? Like, and that's simply because I was part of a union. As a part-timer, 
I had full medical benefits. As a part-timer, I had to go through about 12 different steps before these fools could tell me I wasn't going to have a job anymore, right? Um, All of these protections that we enjoyed as pissant part-time UPS warehouse employee, employees, people with, let's face it, much bigger jobs than my little sort of job in the UPS warehouse couldn't even fathom the power of what a union affords you, dude, when everybody's working in unisons, um, unison from the drivers to the sorters to the loaders to the unloaders. Like, um, people just, I don't know, it's hard for people to imagine the reality of it because they just don't see it out in their everyday lives. Like, and I think that's, I don't know how we get um, a broader labor movement sort of pushed domestically like again what you're saying is is a hundred percent true like i'm lebron james i'm the member i'm a member of a of a union and here are the benefits of it and here's why every single freaking industry should be unionized i don't know that these guys understand because you know they're taught to view their jobs as separate from everybody else not just um from the money they make but like from the fact that their own fans don't see it that way, right? Like the people who actually are consuming the product of the NBA don't see them as working stiffs. You know, they don't see um, LeBron James' no-look passes as, you know, exploitation of his physical work, you know. Yeah, but it literally is. It, 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 like there's no Literally other way is. to put it, right? Yeah. The contracts that are signed with Turner and that are signed with Disney and um ABC and ESPN, that's a manifestation of these guys' physical labor. But people don't see it that way. They don't see it as like, you know, the enjoyment created from watching the dunk as the same as, you know, some carpenter making a great Eames chair or something. Like, they just don't – they're not making those connections, but those connections are absolutely real. And I would love, you know – like, so, man, I'm going to give you guys an example of this. Uh, before the season started, Joe Harris, a white guy that plays for the Brooklyn Nets – he made some flippant remark about, man, I'm pretty happy with my salary. I get paid plenty to play a kid's game. And just like, mm. I just thought wow. that was the most ridiculous pandering ass shit to say. Yes. Um, and Oh, you know what? And this was in the backdrop of the, of the China debacle, right? Where people were mad at LeBron James for not defending the virtues of American democracy vis-a-vis his business ties to China, which I thought was laughable. The idea that you would want a black, like, especially in this backdrop right now, the idea that you would want a black person to be the face of the defense of American democracy. Cool, whatever. Joe freaking Harris. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like, whatever. It's amazing. LeBron, why did you speak out about American democracy? Okay. Joe freaking Harris basically comes out and says, look, man, I I love my salary, blah, 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 blah. blah. Mind you, this fool is a free agent this summer. He's going to be negotiating a new contract. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you him and his agents ain't going to go in there and say, I'm happy with whatever you give me. I get to play a kid's game. (laughs) <laughs> but when it's time to pander to the freaking fan base, this dude basically throwing his union members under the bus. 
Right. And what I didn't see was a bunch of people killing him for it. Like, Mike, you brought this up um, the other day. I forget what we were talking about. Like, in a normal union, that dude would have got his ass whooped. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like, that dude, dudes would have been like, yo, what the hell is wrong with you? And kicked his ass, right? So I don't think the NBA Players Association understands like that they do come from the tradition of factory worker unions, like straight up and down. The lineage is a straight line to that. I don't know that the players understand that yet. Mm. So, I, I mean, look, I, I was under the impression that it's the organization that wins championships and not oh the players. Oh, my goodness. Anna, don't so, even, don't wow. even get me started. Anna knows how to trigger wives. Listen, it's... It, <laughs> it's now it's, she's getting back at you for your drunk self. It's, it's, <laughs> ama- it's amazing because you know why what Anna's saying is doubly funny is that... You know, and I and a lot of my black colleagues in the media have pushed back against this throughout the years. There's been sort of this backlash against the fetishization of analytics based analysis of the basketball product in NBA front offices and management positions. Right. Like there's been this fetishization of NBA types from Ivy Leagues in um, in the NBA media and this idea that these are the guys who are really winning the championships. These guys and their, you know, their algorithms are really the ones that are winning the championships. And, you know, and, and that's that's part and parcel with that same idea, right? It's this, this, this inclination to know it can't possibly be these black dudes from the hood that are doing it, even though the NBA is more suburban now, even the black dudes, than ever before. That's just a, a fact. Like, most of these guys come from great homes, great backgrounds, great situations. There's this unwillingness to sort of give all the credit of this glorious thing that is global basketball to the black guys. That's what it feels like. That's what it always feels like to me. Some people might say I'm biased or whatever. I would always say just because I'm biased doesn't mean I'm wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but like, there's just this unwillingness in it to ever give the credit to the black dudes. Like, you know, a lot of times uh, I see, I even see it when I'm watching ancient aliens and they're telling me that the Egyptians didn't build the pyramids and aliens came down. It's like, Black people couldn't have did. They just couldn't have did it. We can't do it. It's. I see it everywhere. I think, uh, yeah. And also, like, I watched Moneyball, you know, which is the Brad Pitt movie about, like, the remaking of baseball using analytics. And it also just hit me to, like, in addition to definitely the component you're talking about, you just can't separate that trend from an overall, like, that's everything else. Like, oh, we could do algorithms. Mm-hmm. Fuck you. We don't need mm-hmm. you to work. Like, like we, we don't need any human expertise. We don't need to acknowledge the contributions of labor of anybody. We've got some like twerps who can algorithm stuff out. It was funny. I had never seen that movie actually until I was on a plane ride back from my last trip to L.A., last plane I've been in. And I watched that movie and I was like, you know, it was a really fun movie, but I was I was real disturbed by what it was actually saying. But my last question was, is all that being said. Do the players and is the NBA going to come back? Are we going to be in Disney World in some type of plastic dome, quarantined, watching basketball for three weeks? Is that what's going to happen? Yeah, the NBA's 
100% going to come back. And this decision is made in unison with the union and the owners. There's basically $900 million at stake here for them to come back. And so both sides are highly incentivized to come back. And And again, the relative labor peace that exists between the players and the owners is due to the fact that they're now so newly freaking rich from this partnership, right? And even somebody like me, Mike, who um, and Anna, um, who is obviously, you know, I'm more socially minded than anybody, but this is the this is the <laughs> freaking this is the deal that we've made, right? Like the entire point of the NBA as a partnership between the union and the ownership groups is to make money. That's literally the point of this organization. And so the idea that they would come together and try to salvage essentially $1 billion doesn't surprise me. And like I said, both sides are on board. Um, The players, it feels like, completely understand the risks involved, but want to get this money. And, you know, who am I? These guys have agency. They understand the risk. They're okay with putting the games back on. Everybody understands what's at stake. I have no problem with that. This isn't a this isn't a, a situation in like say states states in the southern part of America where stores and companies are opening back up because the government doesn't want to pay out unemployment to employees who are staying home trying to be safe. No, this is the players and the owners coming together saying, "Let's get back together to get this money because it's a lot of money and we both love money." You know what it reminded me of what you just said was before we wrap up. You remember in Godfather 2 where Mo Green says, This is the life we chose. Yep. 100%. Waz, thank you so much, man. We really, really appreciate this. Everybody, obviously, go follow Waz on Twitter and Instagram and all the rest. You can find all of his work at the Count the Dings Network and The Athletic. Definitely subscribe to the Bomb Feed so you can listen to Woke Bros, a show that we co-host with Nando Vila every week. That's a really great show. And you could see him on TMBS and all sorts of places. Find all things Waz. Thank you, Waz. Thank you guys for having me. Obviously, I consider you guys to be two great friends of mine, but just everybody know I'm fans of these people. Like I'm to like it makes me proud to know that we got people like you guys who not only care about this shit but are very thoughtful about what we decide to put out there. And I told you guys, Mike, um, you know, White liberals aren't always perfect, but they who we got. As much as you guys are the models for white liberals, I would encourage y'all as the model citizens of white liberalism, you know, cut our, our worst white brothers and sisters a little bit of slack. That's all I would say to you guys. Model majority. <laughs> I love you guys, man. I'm Thank happy you, Waz. Anytime. All right, definitely. Thanks, well, then, Waz. If that's Later, true, y'all. We'll be back soon. Thank you. All right, so uh, we want to take a quick break? Sure, let's do it. All right, we'll take, guys, we'll be back in about one minute. We still got commentaries. We've got a very funny salt. And then we're going to take some of your questions. We're going to lock that in in like the next 20 minutes or so. We'll be back in about 30 seconds.
everyone, welcome back to Weekends with Anna and Michael. I, I gotta say, having Waz on the show was a blast. Like, I think he's so great, and his opinions are awesome, his analysis is awesome. I'm really glad we had him on. But we're gonna switch gears a little bit um, and talk about issues that aren't related to, well, somewhat related to the protests that are taking place. But, you know, we can't keep our eye off the ball when it comes to what the vast majority of Americans need in this country, and that is single-payer healthcare system. And so I'm going to toss to you, Michael, uh, because that's what your commentary is about today. Yeah, absolutely. So I just want to take a couple of minutes to say that we need to keep really focused on two core policies and not let them fall into the background with you know the defeat of Bernie Sanders, who courageously and correctly pioneered single-payer universal health care, Medicare for all, giving every single human being in this country full and complete health care coverage. How many lives have been lost because we don't have universal health care? How many lives are going to be accelerated in their losses during a pandemic because we have not done what every other industrialized democracy has done? And while achieving the goal of single-payer health care is, in fact, not at all radical and not at all out of step with just building a basic modern society. In America, it is radical because we do know that some of the most powerful interests in this country, not just, of course, the parasite industries, the HMOs, the insurance companies, the industries that profit off of premature death, lack of health in this country and being parasitic intermediaries between you and your healthcare, but also more broadly. We know that like several years ago, when it was a popular wonky argument to say, look, it's in the company's interest. It's in GM or Ford's uh, self-interest to have universal healthcare so that they don't have to provide healthcare for their employees. Well, we actually see very clearly that they want the political ability, the coercive ability to take away people's health care if, as an example, they go on, go on strike for better conditions. It's a political play. There's enormous political power and not having the baseline of every single human being having health care. Fortunately, it's still on the table. I want to put up graphic one, which is basically just that uh, a report has just been issued in the state of New Mexico, which we can get into at another time. But that state legislature and their Democratic leadership is, in fact, looking at potentially piloting a state program for single payer health care. This is a urgent justice, basic humanity, as well as pro labor step. Because as I said before, if you don't have health care to threaten people with, they are more free to do things like organize labor unions and demand better conditions. The other big step that we cannot step away from and we need to keep at the front of the agenda is a federal jobs guarantee. Federal jobs guarantee, again, first one, first, uh, first major impact, huge step forward for organized labor. If there is a federal job competition and you know that if you are able and want to work, you've got it, again, that will incentivize you to organize and demand better conditions and not submit to the hyper-exploitation of the temp economy, the service economy, or the eroding what's little left of the factory and industrial economy. I want to quote actually briefly from Robert Reich, and we'll put this up on screen, uh, from a piece that he wrote for the Sanders Institute in 2018, because this summarizes a lot of this really well. 
At the same time, a lot of work needs to be done. Greening our nation's infrastructure, caring for the elderly, teaching in our public schools, adequately staffing national parks, you name it. So why wouldn't the federal government create jobs and connect them directly to people who can't otherwise find one with decent, predictable hours and a living wage? An added plus, the availability of such jobs would give more bargaining power to many low-wage workers to get better hours and wages because... If they don't get them from their employee, they have an option of a public job. This way, the federal job guarantee would raise the floor for job quality nationwide. I love these two programs because they both, of course, will enormously relieve suffering in this country and help the vast majority of people. But they also are tips of the spear, so to speak, for a strategic realignment towards the capacity for working people to organize themselves, which is absolutely essential, without which we can't have a hope for broader economic justice and our democracy itself is completely eroded by. So keep those two, single-payer universal health care, federal jobs guarantee at the forefront of your policy demands. You know, this discussion goes back to something that you bring up in other contexts, Michael, which is, you know, challenging the power structure. And I have to be honest, I hadn't thought about why employers want to maintain the healthcare system that we have now. And it really is to have leverage over workers. I mean, not only would you fear losing your job, you could lose your healthcare benefits along with it if you're caught organizing and it's a disaster. And we did see that with the GM uh, protesters who decided to organize, uh, they lost their healthcare benefits. And that's devastating, especially um, on the heels of a pandemic, right? No, it was right before the pandemic. Yeah. So I I just, it's such a great point. And also keep in mind that like the, the messaging regarding the freedom of choice is just complete and utter BS, right? Because it's not choice. You are forced to take what your employer is willing to give you and many employers offer healthcare benefits that aren't very great. Like they're just not robust. I'll give you a specific example. Family member of mine uh, has wife and two kids. They spend $1,600 a month on healthcare. And it just blows my mind. That's and insane. he's employed. He has his yep. healthcare through his employer. So that's his monthly uh, premium. And I don't even know what the deductible is. So we do need to change this system. Outrageous. Outrageous. I like those two policies so much because they really, in addition to solving immediate problems like people not having health insurance, which should be obvious, I like that they open the door of clawing power back um, for people a little bit. Definitely. All right. It's been a serious show. Now we're going to laugh at rich people um, because they deserve it. (laughs) Let's do it. Especially... I love I love this because you and I found a little bit of comedic relief in the same like in the same way dunking on the same person and that person and I'm sure we're going to get a bunch of like comments online about this is Elon Musk, oh right? Oh my god. If you're still standing it's, for Elon Musk, come on. What hope do you have? That's just sad. <laughs> really? That is so that is the most like you're, or maybe we just have to be like okay, you're a cuck, you're into it. Mm-hmm. That's your lifestyle. I guess we have to respect that. Because there's no other way that you could possibly still be standing for Elon Musk. Especially with all the nonsense coming from him lately. Um, But he's also been failing hard lately. Um, (laughs) So why don't you you tee this up? Tell us what happened. 
Uh, so uh, what happened was was that Anne and I texted this to each other simultaneously. We we're like, this is the first thing we've laughed at in days. Elon Musk, I don't even know what day this was. This was a couple of days ago. It's so important that, of course, NASA, which has this really important history of public investment, public space exploration for like the common endeavor of the country. No, we need to have privatized space travel. I guess theoretically for this like ever elusive goal of space tourism. And, you know, also because Elon Musk feels a need to send rockets up into space. I have a problem with this stuff being done in a private way, particularly when it's, you know, most of his efforts are obviously on a basis of winning government contracts. But I can't get too deep with it. And of course, we wouldn't be doing this if anybody was hurt. This is just funny. This is just uh, this is like uh, one of those Mountain Dew contests where people like try to like, like fly like homemade hot air balloons like <laughs> off of like a diving board at like the Ch- at like the Chelsea Pier or something, uh, or in San Diego. So this is Elon Musk's great contribution to common scientific endeavor from just a couple of days ago. I don't know, but that doesn't seem to be oxygen, right? Yes. I believe. It. I mean, if it was if it was methane, it'd be igniting in the flare, correct? Uh, I don't want that to be. Oh, whoa! Oh, whoa. Whoa. Oh. Rest, in, rest in peace, SN4. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Christ. Oh my God! I, I hadn't seen it until <laughs> you texted it to me, and I was like, "Wow!" Right? Because I remember the day it was supposed to happen, like the launch day, ended up getting um, pushed back because of weather conditions. And I remember reading a tweet by Elon Musk that day um, before they had to like postpone it, where he's like, if anything goes wrong, it's on me. I take full responsibility and blame. Mm. And then they had to they had to postpone it. And I was like, oh, it's because of weather conditions. But do you want to take the blame? Right. And then a few days later, it actually happens and it blows up like that. And I'm just like, "Mm, where are his tweets taking uh, responsibility for this failure here? You know, to quote Elon Musk, I, I took the red pill. On uh, Tesla, very early on, I never bought it. Yeah. I, I mean, I never bought the Elon Musk bullshit to the point where I actually genuinely feel bad for him as a human being, mm-hmm. because he's just like scrambling around and spinning his wheel to try to fulfill this myth, which is ridiculous and doesn't exist in real life, anyways. Like the idea that there's like this singular genius that can solve mass problems is just completely fucking delusional, and it's built, and that's what's built this whole fantasy arc around him. Mm-hmm. And he is punished by it because he can't just step back and say, like, look, I'm a smart guy. I've got some ideas. I've got some talent. But, like, you know, whatever. I also make plenty of mistakes. I make an ass of myself. Like, Azalea Banks owns me. You know, (laughs) like, maybe I just need to, like, not keep trying to fulfill this ludicrous demand that just doesn't exist in real life anyways. So, you know, in a way, like... I mean, obviously, like the workers who's, you know, look up, you know, labor abuses at his company and stuff. Of course, like that's the biggest concern. And also like just this unbelievable bullshit narrative when so much of that company's funding has come from government contracts. Like all of that stuff is really important, of course. But even just on a personal level, it's like this dude appears to be really, really flailing. And I think it's partially because he feels a need to live up to this fantasy life that does not exist. It's just a complete cultural myth. 
Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And he he seems like a tortured soul. Like he is having a very public meltdown right now. And on one hand, you know, when you see that, you feel a little bad for him, but then you do remember all the labor abuses and you do remember the fact that he has uh, taken all these government contracts and gotten all of these like tax subsidies for doing the right thing for the environment. And then you learn about all of his environmental, um, you know, violations in California. And, And also just this like, crybaby meltdown about reopening, um, you know, his business in, in California. And it's like, do you know how many people like are financially destroyed probably for the rest of their lives? And you're sitting here as like an incredibly wealthy person making yourself out to be like a victim. You're not a victim. And yeah, I, I think that his desire to open prematurely is a a symptom of what you described, like this obsession of like living up to this fantasy that it it just doesn't exist. Like what he thinks. And then you watch that video and you're like, you really want to open up soon, bro? I know. I know. It's amazing. And you know, one other thing that happened yesterday is I was on Twitter, like looking at all these videos (laughs) of what, what was transpiring around the country. And like, it was this roller coaster of emotion because I came across this one video um, that was pretty horrific. There was a there were people blocking the freeway on um, in the Bay Area, and there was a guy driving an SUV with like his windows up. There was someone in the car, and this one person. I, I don't think this was like a, a genuine protester. It was clearly someone who wanted to like go crazy and do stupid things. He was trying to break the window, the driver's side window of the car, the SUV. And I was like, man, this is bad. And I started reading the thread in the comments. And there was one person who who commented, Elon Musk would like to learn more about your car window. Because, like, it would not break. It would not break. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it was just incredible. It was, like, the best comment. That's awesome. So good. That's so awesome. So uh, I guess we're going to do super chat questions. Kale, are you going to drop in for this to read us the questions? Is that how we're going to do this? Uh, I can. Hey, guys. I think that's the best way to do it. Kale Brooks, our illustrious producer, the man who scripts everything we say. Yes, even that. If you have any problems (laughs) with anything that's said on this show, blame him. Talk to Kale. Yeah, please. Uh, Look me up on Facebook. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we have a couple super chat questions. If people have more, you should uh, put them in the chat now, and we'll get to them. But let's see. So we have someone named Simo who says, what do you think will come out of these protests? With the biggest racist in the country in the White House, is there really hope for change right now? So we've already kind of covered that a bit, but maybe just kind of open it up with that one. And, uh, and then, yeah, guys, ask some questions that we haven't already covered. Um, Okay, I'll take a jab at that. Um, I think the best and most honest answer that I can give is I don't know. I really don't. And and I think that you're right in being skeptical about what could come of these protests, given the power structure that we're dealing with. And it's not just about Donald Trump. It's about, you know, even our local politicians and, and their willingness to turn a blind eye to the inequalities in this country. Right. So. I worry about that. But what I also really do worry about with someone like Trump in the White House is that 
people like him use moments of crises to solidify their power and to push the country further in an authoritarian direction. I'm not saying this because I want to discourage the protests. I think the protests are important and I think that they need to happen, right? But I do also think that there needs to be a, a strategic conversation to figure out, A, what is it that we want specifically and how do we get there, right? So what is the political strategy to accomplish uh, the goals without, um, you know, basically just doing protests for protest's sake and allowing someone like Donald Trump and all the goons who surround him, you know, push the country further to an authoritarian direction. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're totally right. And one of the things that, you know, is disturbing is that because of the political configuration we're in, I mean, you know, the real big upshot from this can just be rebuilt police stations and even enhanced police power. Um, that's, absolutely could be something that you know the immediate things that flow out of this and i think like um i unfortunately i mispronounced his name so i apologize but i and i should get his name right because he's a hero of mine but amaklar cabral who was a great you know a, a revolutionary leader said you know he talked about revolutionary truth telling and i think that like it's very important to have honest and serious analysis of these things of anything so we can really kind of plan and capitalize on this moving forward. Now, on the other hand, obviously, I think there's a huge amount of potential here. And a lot of what's happening is obviously really important. I think that it needs to be start to get tied as quickly as possible to really specific political and policy demands. And I think we also need to be, you know, looking at the role, particularly in Minnesota, of outside instigators, potentially, you know, of uh, undercover police, of right wing groups, and even groups also that might identify as allies who are not subordinating um, their agenda to the local context. The local context really is first and foremost. So we have another question uh, from CLP. Do we have more, Kale? Yes. Yeah. Oh, Kale's back. Do you see me, hear me? Okay. It's difficult typing the answers simultaneously while you do this. Yeah, I know. For us to read. So we have another question from someone named Renee. Um, uh, thoughts on how the uprising can develop into full-fledged revolution for systemic change. Uh, and they also wanted to know about uh, police abolition. So I guess the revolutionary potential, um, like you were just saying about the actual demands involved and what part does police abolition play in that? Any role or some role? Yeah. Well, let me take this like this. The policy agenda that I hear associated with police abolition might play a big role. Because I think, like, first of all, I mean, look, there's going to be public safety and that function in any society. There's no utopia where that doesn't exist. Now, clearly, there are so many things that, frankly, police, I mean, if you talk to police, they will say, I don't want to do that. Why am I the person who's called when someone's having, like, a mental health episode, as an example? I'm not trained to deal with that. I don't like, why am I the first response for everything? Clearly, that needs to be changed radically. And also, I think specific uh, demands around, you know, no, like, we're going to cut everything in a city and then we're going to keep, you know, feeding $6 billion to the NYPD. Absolutely not. It's fucking ridiculous. We need to significantly cut budgets and redistribute them to more constructive areas. Now, the slogan, and this is where I'm always really transparent. 
I am completely, I, I just, I, I know that if you take that slogan to uh, most people, and when I say most people, and granted I am talking anecdotally, but I'm also looking at polling data. So most people that I've talked to outside of like a very specific slice of the left from different class, different racial backgrounds, you say that slogan to them, they don't know what that even means. That has like no relationship with what they're processing. So, and they might be absolutely people that want to see radical changes. So my hesitation with things like abolish, and then again, when you push people on that, it's like either pointing to very positive and necessary and radical policy steps, which can happen and we should be pushing for, or in other cases, honestly, like, sure, maybe in a post-capitalist society, X, Y, or Z could happen. But I, I don't know. This is too much of an emergency and too urgent to valorize sloganeering and rhetoric over real things that need to be achieved. And I think, you know, in general, I'm just not going to be someone that ever prioritizes slogans over getting things accomplished. Um, and so I don't think that that is an effective or understandable slogan to mass sell things that urgently need to happen. Yeah, I, I, I have nothing to add to that. I think you're absolutely right. The question specifically for you, Anna, uh, and this might be a bit of a, a hard-hitting question, um, so mm -hmm. you know, take it as you will. Mm -hmm. Who does Anna think this planet belongs to, Beyonce or Chronic? Chronics. <laughs> Chronics. Chronics, excuse me. <laughs> Jesus, Kill. I had Honestly. like, I actually agree with Michael, but like, I'm afraid to say it because like the Beyonce stands are like, they're, they go hard. Hey, <laughs> like, we have do. nothing but respect for Beyonce. I'm just saying if the I earth do, is going to belong yeah. to somebody, it should be Chronics. That's all. That's Agreed. all. And by the way, green. thanks for uh, thanks for getting me mentally prepared like that, Kale. Because I was like, oh god, they're going to ask me about jank or something super annoying that I shouldn't be held responsible for. But I'm glad that you <laughs> <laughs> that it wasn't the case. Well, we wouldn't take questions like that. Anyways. I I produced the show exactly how Stanley Kubrick filmed The Shining. I'm just constantly terrorizing the hosts, and we do 500 takes. Um, we have a we have a question that came in earlier. I don't know who it was from because it's uh, too far up. But someone asked something about um, how uh, they want to hear more about Keith Ellison and kind of his political evolution and perhaps what role he can or, or, uh, or can't play moving forward uh, with the protests. Yeah, I, I got to be honest. I'm not too familiar with his political revolution or evolution, I should say. Um, I, I did hear his press conference yesterday and there was a lot of emphasis on, sure, protest, but you got to be peaceful. You got to follow the rules. I heard a lot of that. And it's it's not that I disagreed with what he had to say, right? Because when there are small business owners who are going to struggle, you know, after their, their businesses are destroyed, there's no question about that. And I really don't want them to be uh, victims because they're part of, uh, you know, they're part of the conversation. Like when you think about where our resources went during this pandemic, small businesses received almost no relief, you know, and all of these massive corporations somehow passed themselves off as small businesses and got the money. And so 
they need help and they need us to fight for them, protect them. These are good people. Right. But on the other hand, like I don't, I don't agree with the majority of the emphasis being on property damage because historically that has been used to deflect and to distract from the underlying issues here. Right. So Really, that's the only commentary I have about where Ellison stands today, specifically in regard to what's happening in the country. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I like Keith Ellison. Um, I, I think actually another part of this agenda does have to be the idea of putting people specifically in district attorney, attorney general positions who are, you know, willing to have some clarity on these issues. And I think he does. And, you know, I mean, obviously, if I was in Minnesota, of course, I would vote for him. Uh, you know, and he's a politician and there's limits to that. But it's good he's in the office he's in. Cool. So we I think we're gonna do one more question. Um, cool. And this comes from Terry. It's a bit speculative. Um, they're asking, will this have an impact on Klobuchar's VP bid? So I don't think that's speculative. I think she's done. But yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with Michael. You know, I looked into because there were accusations that Klobuchar had an opportunity to prosecute Chauvin and that she uh, purposely avoided it and sent it to a grand jury. The timing of that is a little sketchy because um, she was essentially a lame duck prosecutor at that point. She'd already been elected into the Senate and seemed like she was already on her way out. But whether you buy that argument or not doesn't matter what she did in the case involving Mayan Burrell yeah. is all you need to know about her prosecutorial record. There is very likely an innocent man sitting in prison right now, and she knows it. She knows it. There were calls for her to do something when she had the power to do something. And now that she's auditioning publicly for this VP spot, she's pretending as though she cares about, you know, Afri the African-American community, about uh, real justice reform, get out of here. I, I can't stand the pandering and the absolute BS. And um, look, honestly, I, I wouldn't put it past Biden to not care about any of that and still name her as a VP pick. Uh, but I think that likely it's it's over for her. Yeah, I, I find it really unlikely. Obviously, we could always be wrong, of course. But I, I think honestly, and this is a weird thing to juxtapose, but I'm just talking politically, so everything that's happened in the last several days, which could not be more serious, but even back to last week of Joe Biden just making an absolute ass of himself with uh, Charlemagne, both mm -hmm. of those things really hurt Amy Klobuchar. So yeah. uh, I guess that's it. Uh, for questions, I think this will obviously be doing more of these and obviously we'll be back next week. Whatever you do, whether you're still quarantining or you're going out to participate, do your absolute best to stay safe, stay strong, be well, catch some rest if you can. I certainly need to. And uh, thank you, Kale. And thank you, as always, Anna. And of course, thank you to Big Waz. If you're new here, uh, make sure you hit subscribe. Watch all of this other great uh, Jacobin content, the Stay at Home series. I just finished uh, the one on A. Philip Randolph, which I think unparalleled historical importance here, the one with Torrey Reed, and also, of course, uh, check out Jackman website and become a subscriber to Jackman Magazine. That's how this whole show runs. Anna, thank you so much. Thanks, Michael and Kale. Love you guys. Have a great week. Thank you.